I had what felt like an orgasm in my heart. Is that possible? Getting discomfortable with silence. Day two. On the morning of day two, one of the leaders of our retreat, Kyle, talked more about what he called capturing the uncaught mind, which is basically becoming aware of our awareness. This was something I had struggled to figure out on day one, but Kyle put it in extremely simple terms. He was like, Look, we're in a room full of people. Look around this room. Where in this room do you feel that you and your awareness lies or exists? For most people, Kyle said, it feels like your awareness is in your head behind your eyes. And as I looked around the room and thought about it, I was like, he's right. There's all these people here, and in this space, it feels like I am right here, <laughs> and that my awareness is in my head behind my eyes. For me, my awareness didn't feel like it was right behind the eyes. It actually felt like it was sort of like the back of my brain. I could sort of just like feel something there, and that seemed to be the source of all of my thinking. So as we went into the first meditation of the day, I put a lot of effort into trying to focus on that area of my head. First of all, I started doing the counting technique that I talked about in last week's episode, where you count to seven and then you count in multiples of seven. And this time, I actually managed to count in multiples of seven all the way up to 49 without losing track of where I was. This was real progress from yesterday when I could only get to like 21 and had to just keep starting over and over. So I was already feeling extremely focused and clear. And then I started focusing on the back of my brain, this area that kind of felt like it contained my consciousness. And there really was a kind of a feeling there, a sort of like, <laughs> sort of in my imagination, it looked and felt like a, a glowing orb or football that contained my consciousness. And I found that as I focused on that part of my head, it really stopped my thinking. In fact, I've been meditating off and on for a few years, and I've gotten pretty good at letting thoughts go. A thought comes into my mind, and I'm like, all oh, right, I'm thinking, I'm trying not to think, so I just sort of stop mid-thought and let it drift away. But one thing I never felt like I had any control over were the sort of visual stimuli or hallucinations that I saw in my mind while I was meditating. I would either see sort of like just dancing colors or my mind would start to draw up all sorts of free associated imagery. And I had never really learned how to stop that from happening. I just felt like I would get overwhelmed with imagery and the best way to deal with it was usually just to open my eyes and meditate that way. But when I really focused my attention on this glowing football or this feeling at the back of my head that I associated with my awareness or consciousness, it froze. It was sort of like a deer in headlights. By kind of turning my attention seemingly on itself, it got caught in a sort of feedback loop where it couldn't think anymore. And it actually even stopped my visual hallucinations or visual mind wanderings, daydreams, whatever you want to call it. It was the first time that I had actually been able to stop visual hallucinations in my eye by simply focusing on 
what I considered my awareness. It was almost like I was rolling my eyes back in my head. And in fact, my eyes sort of were pointed upward, though my eyes were closed, as if I was looking back behind my eyes into that area in the back of my brain. It was a fascinating experience. It really did seem like when you look at the looking, when you focus on the focus, when you become aware of the awareness, it freezes, it stops, it like seizes up. All the gears just like grind to a halt and you're just silent and neutral and clear. And it's a very calming, (laughs) relaxing feeling to totally stop your thinking machine in its tracks. It was kind of intense. It, it actually felt like I was grabbing a piece of film as it was running through a projector and stopping the whole contraption from moving by holding it in place. As the meditation continued, they were getting longer and longer at this point, my legs started to feel uncomfortable again. And I was trying all these different ways to focus on my awareness or think about other things or just clear my mind so as to not feel that discomfort. And I, you know, sometimes I was successful and then sometimes the discomfort would return and I would feel pain. But I noticed while I was meditating that outside of the meditation hall at one point, there was a rustling sound as if some kind of creature was running around and it sounded close enough to me that I actually had a fear response. And I discovered that when that fear response hit, a kind of like, there's a creature nearby. What if it comes and attacks me? The pain in my legs immediately disappeared. When your brain gets acutely focused on something that it deems really important, pain, low-level pain from sitting too long, is completely gone. Like that priority is just completely lost. And I get it. My body was trying to tell me, oh, you know what? Like, maybe this is bad for your legs, man. Like, you should probably, like, get up and move around. But I knew consciously that sitting for an hour in meditation wasn't going to kill me and wasn't going to hurt my legs. But then when this fear came, that was sort of a higher priority. It was like, oh, okay, now you really need to pay attention. Like, what if this weird snake or something comes and bites you? And once again, I was able to use my brain to say, no, that's not going to happen. I'm in a closed room. And that sound came from outside. But it was fascinating to see that the way my brain could completely change reality from AJ, the person who has discomfort in his legs, to AJ, the person who's about to be bitten by a snake, and how different those two AJs were, but how actually, in the scheme of things, nothing had changed. I was just sitting in one spot, cross-legged. Between meditations, they would give us about a 10-minute break. And I would usually go outside to like stare at ants on trees and marvel at every little detail. Or sometimes I would go to the washroom. And I noticed that as I was going to the washroom, there would sometimes be a lineup. And though we weren't supposed to interact with other people or even look at them or make any gestures or communicate to them in any way, you couldn't help but communicate a little bit in terms of If someone was at the sink, for example, they would sometimes leave the sink running when they left so that you could go up and wash your hands. Or when you were walking down some of the narrow paths around the retreat center, people would step aside to let you pass. So there were these kind of polite, deferential moments, or someone would like hold the lid of the garbage can open for you, but without really acknowledging you per se. And I noticed that when someone did something like that for me, 
I felt good. I was like, oh, that person cares about me. And then I realized, no, that person's not even looking at me. That person has no idea who I am. That person's not being nice to me. That person is just being nice to people, to people in general, to any person. Like, we were all interchangeable at that point. We were all just bodies that we weren't really paying attention to. In fact, one of the rules of the retreat, which I forgot to mention last time, was that you weren't supposed to look in any mirrors. They had covered all the mirrors in the retreat center, and they encouraged us to do the same if we were staying off-site. So, at my Airbnb, I actually took the mirror down in the bathroom. So I had no idea what I looked like, what my hair looked like. I didn't put any effort into looking good. And it didn't really matter because supposedly no one was looking at me anyway. And it made me realize that I take everything so personally in my normal life. Like when someone cuts me off in traffic, they cut me off. When someone holds the door for me, they held the door for me. But then I realized that neither of those interpretations are true. They didn't cut me off in traffic. They just cut someone off. And it wasn't about me personally. So it wasn't like an affront to AJ or a disrespect to AJ personally. Like it shouldn't really have undermined my sense of worth because it wasn't really about me. You know, when someone disrespects us, we feel shame because we feel like it impugns our personal worth. But when you reinterpret that situation that this person isn't really being disrespectful to you, they're being disrespectful to anyone, then in theory, it should bring up less shame. But by the same token, when someone is really nice to you, it's probably not even really about you. That person's just a nice person who would be nice to anyone. Throughout the meditation retreat, they were also teaching us different postures that we could use. For example, you could sit on your knees and meditate, or you could have your legs crossed, or you could have your legs sort of like folded on top of each other, or you could sit in a chair. And there were also different positions for your hands. You know, you could do that classic meditation pose where you put your thumb and pointer finger together, or you could put your hands in your lap, or you could put your hands on your knees, or they suggested you could try putting your hands together in a kind of prayer pose at your heart center, and given that everything in their philosophy is about the heart center, in fact, I don't know if I mentioned it, but the very name of the retreat center, Radaya, means heart. So for the second meditation of the day, I tried putting my hands together in that prayer pose at my chest just to see what would happen. And I don't know if it was because of this, but I had a fascinating experience. First of all, I felt very quickly like I had quote-unquote captured the uncaught mind. I felt like that glowing football at the back of my head was completely in my grasp or or my awareness. It was just like caught. And I was like, okay, so I've literally caught my uncaught mind. What should I do with it? And I was like, well, I should probably just love it. And pretty much as soon as I thought that, I felt a feeling of love well up in my chest, exactly in that area of the chest that I felt from the day before in last week's episode, that kind of butterfly emotional energy or vibration or feeling, whatever it was, that feeling arose really strongly in my stomach, a feeling that felt like love. And and it, it kind of 
shot up (laughs) through my neck like it was a fountain, like there was a fountain in my chest and that fountain just like overflowed with love and the love went up my neck and into my head and just like flooded my neck and head with love. And it just completely flooded and surrounded my glowing football, my, my sense of awareness, my consciousness. And it actually like made my eyes water a bit. It was a really powerful, like really pleasant feeling. And then the, the strangest thing happened as that fountain of love flooded my head it felt like the glowing football of my consciousness dissolved. It was just sort of gone. Or not exactly gone, it was like that football had now been spread all over my upper body. It was like this feeling of love had flooded my torso and my neck and my head, and it had washed my consciousness sort of uniformly throughout my body and my back, at least my upper body. It made my sense of self, like my consciousness or awareness, feel a lot bigger all of a sudden. Like it felt like, it felt like my, my me, <laughs> my envisioning of who I was and where I was in space was now different and a lot bigger and encompassed more of my sort of chest and back as well. It felt incredible. I was literally like beaming and smiling. And then the woman beside me started rustling around like a lot. Like she just kept moving and readjusting and it made this feeling kind of diminish. And as always happens, when a good feeling starts to go away, I felt sad. And then I got angry because I was feeling sad. And I was annoyed at this woman. I felt like this woman was ruining my mojo. And then my brain actually started to come up with all these conspiracy theories. My brain was like, oh, well, she had her eyes open and she was looking at you. And she saw the kind of bliss and joy that you had attained. And she was jealous. And so she started rustling around, maybe not on purpose, but unconsciously to try to disturb your peace. Because she wanted to bring you down. And then I was like, that's absurd. Of course, that's not what's happening. And even if it is what's happening, there's no way I could possibly know for sure. I'm not going to open my eyes and investigate. As they say in AA, other people's opinions about me are none of my business. It occurred to me in that moment that in order to stay angry at someone, we kind of need to attribute a conscious malice to them. We need to say that they knew what they were doing was going to hurt us. Otherwise, we can't really justify being angry at them. And I think because we're so kind of trained to blame someone else for what we're feeling, instead of recognizing that we are responsible for our own feelings, we kind of need to lie to ourselves in order to keep that blame and keep the focus on someone else so that we don't have to deal with the fact that we are the ones who cause our own feelings. By interpreting her rustling as a malicious attempt to derail my meditative bliss, I was able to tune out the fact that I was the one who actually stopped concentrating. I allowed myself to be distracted. I wasn't able to push through that rustling and stay focused on myself. It wasn't her fault. It was mine. And then I was like, wait, I just pumped a bunch of love into my brain and dissolved my consciousness. Where is that love now? 
So I got back in touch with that feeling in my chest, and I kind of just tried to expand that loving feeling up into wherever that angry feeling was, and it actually worked. My anger and annoyance ebbed away, and this woman was still wrestling. Like, she was seriously wrestling. But once I had kind of reinterpreted the scenario, gotten rid of the blame, and focused back on my sense of love in my chest, I just felt neutral about it. I was like, yeah, there's a rustling sound. What of it? Who cares? It doesn't matter. And I was able to get back to focusing on my meditation because that rustling was just neutral. In the same meditation, I had an interesting experience where my mind started to wander and for some reason I started thinking about my body. And I had this intense feeling that I didn't like the way my body looked. I was like, oh, I'm so small and and hairy. I'm just like really unattractive. And then I was like, oh man, deep down inside, I, I guess I just hate my body. I just, I hate it. And then I felt really sad. I was like, oh man, it sucks that I'm this person who deep down hates my own body. And then I was like, wait, I'm thinking again. I'm supposed to be meditating. So I just brushed those feelings aside And I was neutral and meditated for another five minutes or so. And then when thoughts started to reemerge, I was like, hey, whatever happened to that deep hatred I had for my body? And I sort of just like thought about my body again. And I felt completely neutral. I did not hate my body. And I was like, oh, right. This is that classic scenario that I've talked about before where I mistake A feeling which is always transient. A feeling is always temporary. But when you're feeling it, it feels infinite and it feels indicative of some deep truth. So once again, for whatever reason, I had a transient feeling that I hated my body. You know, every now and then I have that feeling. I focus on the negative or some kind of interpretation that being hairy and small is bad. And in that moment, I thought I hated my body. But literally five minutes later, I didn't hate my body at all. I felt completely fine about my body. I was like, great, my body, no big deal. So it was just such an important reminder not to get caught up in those kind of negative feelings or even negative thoughts that go through our head, not to assume that they are true or permanent or in any way indicative of what we really feel deep down. Because literally five minutes later in a different headspace, you won't feel that way anymore. And once again, this really reinforced that question. Who am I? Am I the person who hates his body? Or am I the person who likes his body? Who am I? At lunch, I was sitting and eating in silence. And there's all these people moving around me, just doing their own thing. And it started to feel, because I was never looking at their faces... Like they were extras or something, but very carefully choreographed extras. Like everyone was dancing around me in this very pre-planned way, and I was just sort of at the center of it all, taking it all in. And then I started to notice, because once again, even when you eat, they separate it between men and women. Once I started to kind of become aware of all of these extras moving in a choreographed dance around me, I started to notice that All of them looked attractive, even though I wasn't looking at them. It was like, out of the corner of my eye, every single guy looked like he was super hot. And it was interesting to just see, because I'm 
I'm usually attracted to faces. Like, that's the thing that really draws me to someone. But when I'm not looking at faces, and in fact, when I'm not even getting a very good look at a person at all, the idea of a guy or the mere shape of him or, I don't know, like the pheromones or something, is just like every guy felt attractive when I wasn't looking at him. After lunch, we did our second yoga class. And as I said before, the yoga class is led by our monitor, this young, blonde, potentially German woman who sits and watches us meditate and hands us notes every time we do something wrong. And she has this very slow, neutral way of talking. But the yoga poses themselves are actually excruciatingly hard Not because they're difficult poses, but because they make you hold the pose way longer than is comfortable. And on day one, as I said in last week's episode, I held them as long as I wanted to and then stopped. But on day two, I was determined to hold each pose as long as this young woman demanded it. And it was extraordinarily painful. Like, in my head, I was just cursing and screaming. And it was all exacerbated by the fact that this woman was talking in such a slow, pleasant, neutral way. I was like, how can you talk like that while you are torturing me? Like, literally, it felt like torture. I would be, like, holding this weird pose, shaking, sweating, screaming in my head. And this woman would be like, witness the way this pose makes you feel. And ask yourself, who am I? And in my head, I would be like, I'm in pain. I'm dying over here. That's who I am. I'm being tortured. You're a monster. Clear your mind. Focus on your heart. Who am I? At one point, she had us do this thing where we were literally mashing our stomach like it was bread. We were like kneading the dough of our own belly. And she was saying things like, you are activating the chakras of your stomach. And I was like, girl, I'm activating the chakra of my bladder. I need to go to the washroom. Get me out of here. And to add insult to injury... After she finally let us release each torturous pose, we would then stand there, eyes shut, and she would instruct us to just focus on how it felt. (laughs) It's like somebody stabbing you and then saying, focus on how the knife feels in your stomach. But then I started to think that maybe there was method to this madness. I think that they want us to hold the pose so long that we are forced to confront our bodily pain, forced to confront our discomfort, and forced to find a way to deal with it. They kept saying, who am I? As in, am I the pain? Or am I the consciousness that's looking at the pain? And if I am just the consciousness looking at the pain, 
Do I have to feel the pain or can I just point my awareness somewhere else? And I started experimenting with it. And there were some occasions where I was able to just point my awareness somewhere else and the pain went away. During the lecture portion of the second day, they had a bunch of questions that people had written on pieces of paper. And one of the questions really tested my ability to stay silent. The question essentially said, I had what felt like an orgasm in my heart. Is that possible? And I had to use everything within my power not to burst out laughing at the absurd notion that someone had an orgasm in their heart. Like, of course you had an orgasm in your heart. It's like the most hippie thing I've ever heard. And it was one of those moments where by trying to stop yourself from laughing, you wanted to laugh more. Like, my body was just shaking and my eyes were closed. I mean, I was, it was really quiet and I really didn't want to, you know, insult anyone. So I was trying so hard to bite my lip, and I'm sure other people were as well. There was just like this energy in the room. And then the best part was that Luna, who was answering the questions that day, one of our leaders, said, of course, of course it's possible to have an orgasm in your heart. Why not? But, Luna said, this meditation technique is not about having heart orgasms. Like, maybe you'll have a heart orgasm here and there. Maybe you won't. Don't get attached to that. That's not really the point. That's just a transient feeling that you might have. She really wanted us to focus on these questions of who am I and the nature of reality and the connection between that feeling in our chest and who we are and who everyone is, etc., etc., etc. And some of the answers that they gave I actually thought were quite smart. For example, one person wrote down a question that said, I am an empath. And so if I connect myself to everyone else, I will just be overwhelmed with their feelings and I have to protect myself from that. And Luna just responded by saying, by calling yourself an empath, you are creating this separate identity and creating your own reality. You're focusing your awareness on something specific because you believe that's what you are. And the whole point of the Radaya Yoga method, Luna explained, is to detach yourself from that arbitrary sense of self. You're not an empath. You could be anything. And when you let that categorization of yourself go, you will be a lot better equipped at dealing with emotion. In fact, every time someone asked a question that said something like, I am this, therefore, they would be like, are you really that? Are you sure? Maybe by thinking you are that, that is what is creating the problem. During that afternoon's lecture, it started to occur to me that it was almost like they had founded this entire philosophy or religion or whatever you want to call it around a physiological phenomenon. At this point, I was pretty much convinced that they had basically discovered the source of the physiological feeling associated with our emotions, that that source is generally in our chest and it radiates out from the chest. So it's almost like they had founded an entire religion just around a feeling in your chest, which to me sounded kind of absurd at first. But then I thought about something that I heard from a psychologist named Dr. Alan Downs. 
He is an expert on shame, and he wrote this great book called The Velvet Rage, which, though not perfect, makes a really good case for the way shame affects the queer community. And Alan Downs, in one of his other books called The Half-Empty Heart, I've spoken about it before, says that the best thing in life is feelings. And when you think about it, that's actually true. Without feelings, we wouldn't enjoy anything because enjoyment itself is a feeling. Without feelings, we wouldn't love anything because love itself is a feeling. In fact, without feelings, we probably wouldn't even have the words good and bad because I feel like those words and those judgments are so deeply rooted in positive feelings and negative feelings. Everything would just be sort of neutral and cold without feelings. We wouldn't really like things because they wouldn't make us feel positive, and we wouldn't really dislike things because they wouldn't make us feel negative. In fact, the whole notion of something being profound, I think, is a feeling. We feel that it's profound. And so maybe they were on to something here in that though their entire religion may have been just based around the fact that we feel things in our chest— If feelings are the best part of life, if feelings are what give our life meaning, then they had essentially discovered the source of the best part of life. They had discovered the source of what gives our life meaning. And it is an area in our chest where those feelings come from, where they are born from. And if you get in touch with that, you can feel those feelings really powerfully and you can also kind of control them. And then I had an epiphany that God is a feeling. Of course, God is a feeling. God is not a concept or an idea or a thought. God is a feeling that we all have. I started to think that all humans, and and I believe this, all humans naturally have within them a range of feelings that we call spirituality, a range of feelings that are associated with awe and meaning and a sense of profoundness or profundity. (laughs) Is that the word? I don't know. Anyway, I think innate to all humans is the capacity to feel that really powerful feeling that we call spirituality or God. God is a feeling that evolution has put inside of us for whatever purpose because it helped us connect with each other and it helped us connect with nature perhaps and it helped us stay alive somehow. So if God is a feeling and feelings are everything, then what essentially they were doing is putting us in touch with the source of God. If they were putting us in touch with the source of all of our feelings in our chest and God itself is just a feeling, then they literally are putting us in touch directly with God because God's just a feeling. There's no actual God out there in my estimation. God is a feeling. And if you want to get in touch with God, then you have to go to the very source of your feelings in order to get in touch with him. And then I had another thought. What if God is just a feeling, but in order to fully feel that feeling, you need to believe in God? Because all of our feelings are attached to beliefs. When we believe that something positive is happening, sometimes based on ideology, we feel a bunch of positive feelings. 
when we believe that something negative is happening, often based on ideology, we feel negative feelings. You know, when we perceive someone as having disrespected us, we feel shame. But when we look at it a different way and perceive that actually they weren't disrespecting us at all, they didn't even know we were there, then we feel a different feeling. We, we feel fine. So what if, in order to fully feel the feeling that is God, you have to believe that there actually is an objective God out there in the universe? It's like a catch-22. You can't fully feel God until you just believe in God. And then I was like, holy shit, that's what faith is. Faith is the leap of ideology that you need to make in order to feel a feeling that actually just emanates from inside your own chest. And when you think about it, feelings are not logical. There's no logic to a feeling. Though a feeling may stem from our thinking, the feeling itself is just a feeling. It's just a physiological reaction. And we sort of associate all kinds of thoughts on top of it. But the feeling itself has no logic at all. And if God is a feeling, then it makes perfect sense that there is absolutely no logic to God. Because there is no logic to any feeling. So God is a feeling. Therefore, you cannot in any way capture or encapsulate God with any kind of intellectual, rational, or logical constructs. God is just a feeling, and feelings aren't logical. But feelings are everything. Feelings are what make life worth living. So in a way, I had a profound, once again, a feeling, a profound new respect for the idea of God. And I wanted to try to feel God. But I don't believe in God. I don't believe that there is a God. So I was caught in this catch-22. How was I going to feel the feeling that is God unless I could somehow convince myself that God actually existed? And that was the end of day two. We will continue next week with the final installment, Day 3. 